So on that lines and what we're leaving, where is the Spirit leading the church in the 21st century? I noticed one thing I, I remember was uh, basically to rethink ministry, make it relevant. Um, it's going to be Christ-focused as opposed to man-centered. So as we think about transition, learning how to do what you're not doing or not accustomed to, those are just some thoughts I'm throwing out here as I'm asking that question. Uh, where is a spirit leading us? Obviously, the cross is still the same message. So if, 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 if we were to answer that question to summarize the conference, what would, what would be the answer? I think I'd answer at two levels. Firstly... Oh, this is Dale talking. Uh, I, I think I'd answer at two levels. Firstly, uh, I'm, as a person and as a minister of the gospel, I'm growingly concerned uh, that all of us that pastor and lead things become more kingdom-minded in the midst of our local church ministry. Uh, Jesus did not say, I'll give you keys to a church. He said, I'll give you keys to a kingdom. He didn't say, I wouldn't shake the church. He said, you'll have a kingdom that can't be shaken. The preponderance of the teachings of, ministry, uh, of the ministry of Jesus was about his kingdom and what he wanted that to look like. And yet today, there is a false gospel among us in our practice, and it's this. We will take care of you. The church is here to meet your needs. I would beg that as a false notion, that God did not launch a church to look after needs. He launched a church to fulfill kingdom purposes and to reveal his godness and his Christ-likeness to us. And that the closer we get to that idea that our, our churches are not driven by meeting the needs of people who drone on eternally about the uh, infractions of their lives, and we become conscious of this. When is this question answered in any given Sunday morning service? King Jesus, what do you want today? When do we respond to that as our primary motive? So that's one level that I would press upon us to really say, okay, God, how do we transition from being predisposed to tending sheep, meeting needs, exhausting ourselves, you know, motivating board people to do boring things that we call ministries to sustain board people who will be back the next week with board problems? How do we transition from that to... King Jesus is doing something in the earth that's significant, it's quantifiable, it's knowable, and it's doable in some measure. How do we get to that and at the same time not destroy what we call local church ministry today? The second level has to do with just the ebb and flow of God's spirit in the earth. And I'll make this very short. In Joel 2, there's some incredible promises, starting at verse 28. I'll pour out my spirit and some stuff's going to happen, some phenomena be signs and wonders and visions and stuff and prophecy and so on. <clears throat> when you come to the book of Acts, chapter 2, there's this outpouring and there's more phenomena, wind and noise and fire and tongues. So nothing on the day of Pentecost fulfilled what Joel prophesied. Not one thing happened that day that Joel said would happen. And then the whole picture gets confused by Peter who stands up and says, this is that which Joel talked about. What? Since nothing Joel talked about happened here, I don't know, where, where's the connect in this whole thing? Uh, here's the connect. 
who's Joel talking to? National Israel about repenting and getting right. Tear your heart, not your garments. That's the first part of chapter 2. And then he says, after this, which is how verse 28 of chapter 2 starts, I'll pour my spirit out, and this is what it'll look like. Well, if you're Jewish, signs and dreams and visions and prophecies, that's all every day those terms were as common as peanut butter is to us. We know those terms. That happened in the eventual working of God with Israel. Move to the book of Acts, what's God trying to do there? He's not trying to refresh Israel. He's trying to launch a church. And so the end goal is different. I believe that there's one more great outpouring coming that's going to finish the harvesting, give us the equipping, the graces, uh, and all the rest. So so I don't know if, if today is going to be signs and wonders in the sky above and the earth beneath and our kids prophesying and old men dreaming dreams or it's going to be wind and tire, uh, tongues and fire and smoke or some combination or none of the above. What I do know is it'll be miraculous and there will be a harvest. So I think those are the two areas. Academically, we need to think through what does it mean to be a kingdom person and a kingdom house today as opposed to local church and its ministries, which largely are involved in sheep tending as opposed to an army that's militant. And secondarily, let's just keep reaching out to God and be open for him sending his spirit in any way he wants to, no matter what it looks like. And we're not going to have another Zusa Street or another charismatic movement. All that is gone. And if I might say, it doesn't need to be repeated. Thank you very much. I'm done. Add to that. Um, I thought that uh, Dale was uh, pressing something out. went a little bit of a different direction. But one of the things I would add to this whole understanding of what it means to be a kingdom people is that I think God is thoroughly unimpressed with the ARC and with the FCA and with uh, all of the – I mean, it's like they're good. They're good enough. But there's something about a cross-pollinization that's going on that I think he is so deeply interested in uh, of actually being willing to let go of the things. I mean, not not dismissing what God's given you in your own particular – Avenue, but actually understanding that there is um, there's so much more of this uh, of the work of actually cross pollinating, but it's really difficult. Uh, it's it's hard to do, and uh, but the results of it are much bigger. And uh, so I, I, I've seen this happen in the ARC now. We, we've had two churches merge with BGC churches, Baptist churches, which you'd look at and you say, ah, that's not going to work. Um, well, it is working, and but part of it is all the front work that you have to do. And so it's not just mer- church mergers. It's all of the working together. Like Mission St. Paul is, is a kingdom venture of, that's, that's really crossing lines everywhere, and it produces a kind of fruit that is looks like the kingdom of God. And I, so I see that happening uh, across the board everywhere, and just in terms of what does it mean to be out of the box, that's one of the things I see very plainly that the, the cross-pollinization of the Spirit uh, crossing over groups of people who normally would not spend too much time together and learning how to draw from one another and be together. I, I just wanted to ask the question, when you say what is God, where is God taking the church, do you mean the church universal worldwide? Do you mean North America? Do you mean what... Do you have a specific sense of what you were asking? Okay. 
Okay. Yeah, I get you. I, you know, and I don't. One of the senses I would have in answer to that question, though, is that question is a good way to get back in a box. Because the fact of the matter is, he's doing something very different in Iran than he's doing in Canada. He's doing something very different in China than he's doing in other parts of the world because they're different places. It's the same as we read in the Bible. He was doing a different thing with the church in Jerusalem than he was doing in Antioch. And he did a different thing in Antioch than he was doing in Ephesus and Rome because they were at different places and they were coming from different places and needed different uh, dealings of the Holy Spirit. And he's very accommodating to reality. (laughs) In other words, he takes us from where we're at to where he wants us to go. And yes, I agree. Where he wants us to end up is the same place, which is why the kingdom is so important uh, because that's what he wants us in. And that's also cross-pollinating is one of the ways he gets us moving faster. But I would even say that that's true, that he's doing different things in Helena, Montana that he's doing in St. Paul in, in one sense. Because they're at different places, you know, culture. You know, you still go to parts of this country where the church is still the center of the town. It's still the center of the community. And here, that's not true in the Twin Cities anymore. And and so I would always say we should rather say, Lord God, help us understand where we're at and what we have to do next to further the kingdom growth. And I know in answer to that, in our situation, which probably is relevant to a lot of us, what he's saying is um, you don't know how to disciple because, as was said here, basically we've had pastors just basically doing services for sheep that don't grow sheep. They just sort of placate sheep from week to week. and keep them coming back, I guess, which, anyway, don't want to say anything nasty. But, uh, you know, right now what the Lord's saying is disciple and learn to disciple because the, the mark of a disciple is that he's discipling somebody, and we've lost that. Most people don't know how to disciple because they were never fully really discipled. They were dumped into a whole lot of information, and they can't even sort out from what the information this is, you know, they can't even tell you what are the basics I would have to pass on to the next generation if somebody would listen to me and allow me to disciple them. So one of the things I think we have to do is go back and just teach people to be disciples and disciple. I think community is a huge issue, he's saying, because, um, you know, this is, again, why you can't say he's doing the same thing. They don't have, they don't have cars in Uzbekistan. And the existence of automobiles in the West changes everything about how we do church because some people travel 50 miles to go to church and they don't stay in their community and even have a heart for the place they live. So, again, in one sense, we need to remember that we can't ask the question, what's he doing universally? 
and then allow him to tell us what he wants to do here. I've, I've, I've adopted a saying that all prophecy is local. You've heard all politics is local? I've come to the point where I've been saying what I really need to know is not what he's going to do nationally. I need to know what he's going to do in Hastings and and to bring prophets in who can get in touch with God and say, this is the next thing that he wants to do in Hastings. This is the demonic force that's really ruling Hastings and messing things up in Hastings. And I think we need to become much more convinced that Jesus can lead us from where we're at to where we need to go next. Um, so we don't get back in boxes. You know, that's not what we want. Uh, just a, a quick comment. Um, um, as, as I travel, just relating primarily to the church in the U.S., <clears throat> um, the, the church in the United States, we've got some great churches that are doing some great things, and Sometimes when you look at that, you get the wrong impression. The fact is the church in the U.S. is shrinking, um, not growing. And, and if we say it's growing, we're, we're not looking at, at the stats to, that prove that the church is shrinking in the U.S. Um, another reality is that um, we probably haven't had, I, I think we've probably had three national awakenings. Um, the two are obvious, the, the third as I've talked to people and, and, and observed, it seems that 50 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, with the um, the charismatic outpouring of the Holy Spirit in um, denominational churches and the Jesus movement kind of happening simultaneously, was a national moving of the Spirit that really impacted every corner of our nation. I don't think we've had anything that's impacted every corner of our nation for 50 years. Um, We've had spots of things happening, but I, I, I really feel that um, um, that there's an awareness that um, that we we need to see God move in our nation in a in a distinct way, differently, and it's going to because first, second, first, second, and third outpourings of the Spirit were all unique and were clearly out of the box. I mean, no one saw the Jesus movement coming. No one saw that in the middle of the of what was happening with with riots concerning Vietnam War and all that going on. No one saw the Jesus people movement coming. No one saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit really uh, upon denominational churches. So, so what what's next? I mean, God only knows literally what's next. But I I, I still have hope that that we will see um, in difficult days ahead economically, politically, internationally, even as we're seeing right now with Hamas and Israel going on just today and yesterday, um, that um, as things continue to heat up, I, I believe we're going to, you know, we're, we're becoming riper and riper for, for a national awakening, and I, I pray that will, that will happen. Let me give you one oh, sorry. Let me just give you a word of encouragement on the other side of the coin. The kingdom that Jesus has, has attached his name to is, in fact, growing all over the earth. All is not lost. A lot of things are going on. Uh, this local church has helped buy a bunch of these things for our ministry. There's a 230-hour Bible school on this little baby that we give away with a universal connector kit. Now, uh, 
my friend Ned is here selling hot sauce, and if he can take up money for slathering steaks, I can take up money for these. No, I'm not fundraising. I want to bear a point. We give these away with a universal connector. So it's a whole Bible school on this little baby, okay? And uh, <clears throat> I met some men last year in February. Uh, one man pastors 125 people. He's a Chinese brother, a Chinese Baptist church in downtown Los Angeles. The second man that was with him is a highway engineer for our road system in California who goes to a small charismatic Chinese congregation. And the third man owns a Chinese laundry. They got a hold of this device, went into the interior of China, rented a house way out in the country, and from the house churches, this is five years ago, from the house churches drew together 100 people, kept them locked up in that house for two weeks, put them through half of this program, encrypted all of their names and addresses in code, got that on CD and got it out of there. Six months later, went back, put them through the other half. Now fast forward to now. The mandate at the end of the training being completed is each of you, there were 100, each of you are asked this year to reproduce this program in 100 other people in a whole year. The number of people that have now been through 230 hours of Bible training under these three men a Baptist pastor, a road engineer, and a guy that runs the cleaners has exceeded three and a half million. I'm telling you, the kingdom Jesus has his name on is growing everywhere. Your question, um, Dave, on the direction the church is going provoked a thought in my own mind in terms of where the church is at now. Uh, and it's highly relevant to where the church is going. The prophetic linkage to this goes way back into the late 1990s, where I became very aware that the next move of the Spirit within the church would be to reform the institution of the church. The ministries have already gone through reformation, but instead of having a, a professional reverend um, in the pulpit, there's been a restoration of the past, pro, apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, and evangelist. Of course, we know there's been a great reformation in praise and worship, a restoration of the gifts of the Spirit, a restoration of many godly themes that if we apply the tools of history to the inner workings of the church, we can see that over the last 100 years, the Reformation has taken place in the inner workings of the church. Now it's all about the institutional model of the church going through Reformation. Uh, and ultimately, the Reformation is designed to make the church extroverted in nature rather than introverted in nature. The model that my brother and friend Dale emphasized on the church functioning primarily as a caring center is evidence of a church that's deeply introverted. Um, an extroverted model of the church is a church that's releasing the kingdom of God everywhere the people go. We all want that. There's no resistance to that model. 
But we wouldn't have a clue how to bring that about. In the meantime, we could form committees and debate forever and a day. But we would not move one inch forward. The Holy Spirit's doing the Reformation right now, whether we want him to or not, or whether we have asked him to do so or not. But in the lead time, in the inter-move of the Holy Spirit phase of the church that we are in, we are not passively looking forward to the days when the Holy Spirit visits the church again. I believe primarily there's five things that's taking place in the body of Christ right now. And I want to qualify that further. Uh, I mean primarily the churches with the Pentecostal or charismatic affiliation. I don't want to be too partisan in that. God's idea of, of, of bandwidth is much broader than mine. But essentially, at this time, the Holy Spirit's re-educating the church and bringing to the fore, not just simply word knowledge, but doctrine. We gleefully threw that out as red-hot raving charismatics and labeled everything religious that didn't fit our narrow perspectives. The Holy Spirit's teaching the church sound doctrine to bring stability to the church, that we can think rationally as well as moving forward spiritually. Secondly, the Holy Spirit's beginning to burden the church for the 21st century mission field, which is the city. The city, whether it's the Twin Cities, whether it's New York, whether it's Nairobi, I was so encouraged by my brother Steve Manning uh, talking of the doors that God is opening into the, the Islam world. He never said this, and I'm putting words in Steve's mouth, but I can guarantee you that a lot of the activity, if not all of the activity that Steve referenced, will ultimately take place in cities. It's a new mission field, and we have been taught that at the present time. Three, the Holy Spirit's teaching the church in this inter inter move of the spirit period to be missional again we think we know what it means to be a missionary church and we have a level of revelation there that to serve the 19th and 20th century missionary movements very well indeed never the twain shall meet the 21st century missionary movement will not relate to anything that's taking place in the 19th or 20th century four there's a new militancy that the Holy Spirit's teaching us at this time because most of us have been victims of religious spirits and the enemy oppressing us and coming against our life. And we've had to break through in our own lives to love God. Uh, we've had to break through in our own lives to worship God, love people, and forgive our enemies and identify ultimately that in the gig of life we've been playing, our sole enemy has been the evil one. Fifth, the Holy Spirit's teaching us to be indomitable as a people at this time, that we will stand no matter what we go through. If I were to outline all the, the, the stuff I've had to walk through in the first 12 years of this millennium and my extended family and ministry and all that, you would think, Goodness, how could that happen to a preacher? But it's real life for me. And I'm a big coward by nature. And as we say in Scotland, a big fierty 
and acquit really quickly. But the Holy Spirit has been working in me that I'll keep standing and standing and standing. And we win ultimately as a global movement by continuing to stand and until the devil's done and on the floor. And a lot of spiritual warfare narrows down to that level of simplicity. So that's the five points. I'm very confident in the Holy Spirit that's working out in all of our lives. And I concur totally with my brother Dave. We don't really know what it's all going to look like once we're the other side of this. God's imagination, intelligence, and sense of vision is far greater than what we can even imagine. Our imaginations are inadequate. But to kind of match that up to the five points we made, when it's time for us to know what the Holy Spirit's going to do next, he'll just touch the missional prong and the five points in the spirit that he's working heavily on right now. I hope that's helped some. I hope that's been clear enough. I'm Jan Rasmussen. Uh, this question just kind of formed in me right now, but um, I think I've seen something here be, uh, among some of the leaders and um, with your connection, Pastor Jim, of kind of an accountability or a partnering um, that you've, you know, I've, I've heard about but haven't been around to see so much um, between churches. And... Um, just thinking of kind of the history of the FCA and structures and that. And um, I've been in different denominations myself, so I'm not a super denominational kind of person. But it seems like a lot of the um, relationships that people are um, being challenged in or being account, finding accountability with are maybe outside of um, a certain denominational structure, I guess. So my question might be like... Um, what about wh- where do pastors or leaders find kind of some of that accountability or um, relationships that can come alongside and um, help them? And um, how how do how do we help people that might be left in the you know that might not be finding those? Like I, I'm thinking especially of pastors, but I guess it could be broader. It could be missionaries and different leaders, whatever. I don't know if I'm really articulating that, but um, it just seems quite different than a denominational structure where you're kind of in charge of the, or the bishop or whoever might be. It seems like something different is happening related to what you maybe just said, but you guys seem to have found that, and I'm just and I think that's neat. And um, you know, how do you find it? How do you sustain it? What about people who don't find it? How do we help them? I don't know. Does that make sense? And, and how about others, like within the FCA now, it seems to me the, the pastors get together, but the wives, the parishioners, the others are not part of it. Um, the, the structure of the ARC when it began in the 70s was really rooted in that. 
the part of the part of the big deal was um, who takes care of the pastors and who takes care of the leadership teams and and most of the history that we saw in denominations was that there was a um, was a denominational superintendent who was more of an administrator actually didn't carry out the pastoral things of genuinely caring for a pastor so that was one of the big deals that that we entered into and um, and it was a lot of the pastors in the ARC really found that in particularly with their relationship with Ray Nether he found a lot of they, a lot of them would say he saved my life you know because you know you there's so, many of the, there's so many of the moral issues that you see now, and you say, well, where was the accountability? And that's to say that we don't have any, anything like that. You know, if you don't want to be accountable to someone, you can just not be accountable to someone, and you can fake it and navigate around it. But, but that, that's one of the things that was helpful. But about six or seven years ago, I was then as overseeing the ARC and making sure that that kind of thing pastorally, that pastors were pastored, uh, it struck me that a lot of churches just simply uh, weren't interested in that because they didn't want to be connected to a umbrella organization. So I started another ministry called Whitewater in which I would go out to churches and just bring me and say, and, but it's, it's a funny thing because what you're doing sometimes is saying, hey, uh, I'm available. Do you want me to actually uh, hold you accountable in your life? And it's like, well, a lot of people are saying, oh, no, thanks, you know, but but there's a lot of ple- people, and that, that was what was so sp- stirring me on, is that I, I just saw so many pastors and leadership teams that had no outside resource. Uh, they just were s- existing out there, and it was like, to me, it's an accident waiting to happen. Um, because it's not part, you don't see it in the New Testament. You, know, they, you don't see that at all. And so, but we evolve into that, and then we get into denominational structures. You know, I'm not against denominations, but, but they actually, the vision for doing that is very limited. And so, so one of the things, for instance, just, and I'll just end with this. In my relationship with Jim, for instance, uh, what we formed first was praying together, and then we became friends. And then because we both really did want to see the kingdom of God, well, we're accountable to each other. And I, I would die for him. And I think it finally gets down to that. Would you, do you have people that would die for you? And I do. And I would die for people because the link has been so uh, developed and opened. And, and we have eternal life together. It's kind of what Jesus said. Father, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life has to do with knowing somebody, but... But if I know him in Jesus, the knowing that we have is eternal life. That knowing, it's, it's, it's a quality of life. It's not a longevity of life. So I have eternal life with him. Does that sound heretical? It's not. If it, if it sounds like that, it's not. <laughs> that there's a life together in Christ that, that occurs over time and relationship and friendship. And those uh, have to be cared for. And so, that, so that's part of what we've done. Uh, and it's, it's uh, you know, we've stumbled around with the whole thing. We're not that good at it, but we keep moving toward that because just what you said, Jan, I think it's crucial. I think it's just crucial that that happens. I think you had your hand up. Oh, that's Dave. Yeah, that's Dave. Um, this is 
an interesting subject because I think there's two sides to it. Um, I, I pastored 35 years before I started traveling uh, for Great Commission Media. And, um, and I felt it was my responsibility when I was pastoring to seek out people, um, to develop relationships to look for mentors, to look for people that, that were safe places, uh, guys that I could talk to, guys that I could spill my guts to. I felt that was my responsibility. It wasn't somebody else's. That, that was, so, so I sought after people in relationship, and, and, and Jim and I have had that kind of relationship for many, many years, and, and I had a relationship like that with George Stormont. I had a relationship with other people because I sought that out. I, I, I was looking for it. And I, I, think, I think there's a lot of guys out there that are hurting. And, hey, frankly, some of it's their own fault because they've chosen to live in isolation. Okay. The other side of the fence is this, is that now for the last almost, well, going on, this is my sixth year now, now I'm meeting with pastors every week, uh, literally, and um, I remember being in Illinois. I was done with what I was doing. Um, and and I, I, I did not have anything happen in that afternoon. I just walked into a church. Church, I just a cold call. I'll do that. I, I'll just walk in. And, and I walked in, talked to, um, asked if there was a pastor available on staff. And it was a larger church. And. And, and so a guy comes out, and I said, hey, I'm Dave Oldham, da-da-da-da. How about going out for coffee? So we went out for coffee uh, at McDonald's. And in 10 minutes, I, I'm not exaggerating, in 10 minutes, that guy was, I mean, he was bawling so hard. Uh, and, 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 and now I've had this happen numbers of times. And what I'm discovering is that guys that are in denominational structures, what happens is they cannot talk to the guy above them because it's political. And they, mean, they may lose their position. <laughs> or, or, or it's not a trusted thing. So what happens is that there, there are people like this, you know, that, that have the opportunity because we're all um, doing something with, with other pastors. So, so we have the privilege and the opportunity to come alongside of people and and be a friend and develop credibility and relationship and ask the hard questions and and be interested enough in them uh, to show them that we are concerned about their life and their ministry and where they're going. And frankly, to me, that's a huge part of my calling right now is being just that to pastors. And I, I, I really feel there's a great need for, for fathers um, there's a great need for, for, for guys who, who aren't trying to big, be the big shot, come in with all the, all the answers, but have bigger ears than a mouth. Um, I, I get sick and tired of being with people that all they do is talk. Why? Because it's all about them. It's all about their ministry. It's all about me and what I'm doing. And, 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 and they, they never take a breath to listen. And, and, and I, think, I think the role of a, the role of a, a father to pastors is to be someone who's willing to listen and, 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 then, and then begin to begin to ask hard questions and, and to relate. So, so the, uh, Jen, what you brought up, I think, is, 
is a huge area. There's, there's, there's thousands of guys out there that are, that are lonely. And, you know, some of them because of their own fault, others because they really don't know where to go. Uh, they, there's a lot of hurting guys out there that need, need help desperately, need someone to come alongside. This is Dale. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the things that uh, very much encourages me today on, that takes what Dan and Dave have talked about to another level, uh, they're talking about safety, but they're talking about mutual accountability, growth of friendship, absolutely the root and foundation of, of anything moving forward, which has yielded in the context here, Mission St. Paul, and probably a lot of other things to, to follow. And Mission St. Paul is very much a transdenominational thing by its nature. Interestingly enough, it seems as though God has chosen not to, to extricate us out of our tribes for the most part. Mm-hmm. If we've wandered off, you know, we've probably wandered off on our own, and any banana that gets out of the bunch gets eaten, so you have to be careful where you wander to. Where in the world did that illustration come from? I, I haven't been anywhere near bananas recently, but... but <laughs> I mean, if it'll work, preach it. So, but at a different level, I see going forward city elderships in which people from many tribes and many kinds have decided that the business of Jesus is bigger than my thing. And if we're ever going to reach the Twin Cities or Los Angeles or at anything, at, at a certain level, we have to belong to something bigger than ourselves and something we don't control. Those two keys. We don't control it, but it's bigger. Mm-hmm. A few years ago, Gloria and I lived in Dallas, and we got a sort of a printed invitation in the mail to, be, to belong to some, to, to join something that was happening on Pentecost Sunday night. And uh, I went to a, a planning meeting. I guess about 80 or 100 pastors were there. And uh, Assembly of God guy, Word Faith guy, independent Pentecostal guy, an Anglican then a Catholic priest on the dais. I thought, this absolutely will not work, you know, because t- we talk in tongues, we prophesy, we, who in the world is going to hang around with these guys? But when the worship started here, the priest is dancing before the Lord and the Anglican guy is prophesying, laying on his back. I thought, well, this looks pretty good. Maybe we'll let him in the club. But, but they, they decided that Pentecost was an easy day for all of us to be together, and we could celebrate together. We don't have to define it or defend it. We just need to celebrate what Pentecost is about. Well, that's that's a pretty good idea, right? So they rented this building, and we helped. Our church helped. I was pastoring at the time. 5,000-seat building for traffic jam. 7,500 people showed up, and it went on for four hours. It was a a home run. Three years later, there were 150 churches involved with that. They rented Reunion Arena, which seats 22,000, and you had to get there three hours early to get a seat. And it did something in the city that goes on today. That's cracking the egg, folks, of me, mine, and yours, and I'm important. Because no one got up to I mean, We had names, but no one even mentioned by choice the title of their church or their tribe. We chose not to do that. We're going to put Jesus out front, and we're going to work hard to keep him out front. How many know that's an innocent kind of thing, but it says something to the city 
because it makes the newspapers every time, if nothing else, because of the blinking traffic jams. But, but, but the religion writers really go, guess what? There, were, there was 80 or 90 denominations together, and they had dance and drama and a great word from heaven. And uh, I'm, I'm a little bit political. I like to watch what people look like when they leave church to see what we've done to them. How do they look? Are they looking at their shoes? Are they angry? Are couples depressed? Well, I stood out in the parking lot with two of my kids for a little while, outside the building, not the parking lot, just outside the watch. There was absolutely an effulgence of joy. So what developed in a, in a very skinny way in Dallas, Texas, was a city eldership made of that. How many of you know normally Catholic priest doesn't get on with wild-haired Pentecostal chandelier swingers? That, that, that's kind of a, that's a long stretch, right? Well, for those that don't know, that is a long journey to hook those two people together. But there was a reason on that day that was valid enough for them to say, this is bigger than being a Catholic or a wild-haired Pentecost. It's bigger. And we can make a statement to the city. So in my heart, I see that coming in many places, that we find reasons that are valid to be together that will promote the idea there really is only one church in the Twin Cities, has a lot of pieces connected to it, and we don't have to come out of those pieces lest there not be a mosaic. I've learned about accountability in the context of relationship. Uh, I think a lot of kingdom learning is we learn by default to begin with and information is forthcoming and thought structures uh, take place and then we look back the way and say, ah, I get what the Lord has been teaching me. You can get paper covering very, very easily and have them in frames in your office and point to them and say, that's all my coverings there. And it will impress the naive and the immature. But true covering ultimately is relational, whether there's a diploma on the wall or not to back that up. Um, when you're in relationship with somebody, they really know you, which means they're aware of your weaknesses. And you're, you do, you're unaware of how deeply aware they are of your weaknesses. Um, so it means they know you kind of lock, stock, and barrel. They have a very good overview of who you are, where you're coming from. But true accountability takes place because, first of all, God has done a work in your life. And you hate sin. But you know what sin could do to you. You know where sin could take you and keep you. And the work of God in your life has gone to the point where you don't want this to be about you. You don't want to be a great minister. You don't want to be a great anything because you see the absolute futility of building anything in this life that has self at the center. So there's a saying we have in Glasgow, you become like those you're with. And my own theory is you attract people into your life that are just like you. Before I knew Jesus, I was an alcoholic. So all my friends were alcoholics. And we're all in this competition with one another to see whose liver could explode first. They were just the way I was, and I was the way they were. But I have found in my own ministry calling, as God does a work in me, a genuine work in me, in spite of me, not because of me, that the people that are attracted to my life are like me. They're where I'm at. 
and and we're there at. And occasionally, God will draw someone to me who's light years ahead of me in every department. And that relationship will take on a mentoring role as well as offering accountability. So there is an informal component, but that in itself isn't enough. I believe the body of Christ has never been as wise and discerning as it is right now. And if you're in traveling ministry or in any kind of portable ministry, there's lots of wise heads out there that want to see your credentials. So they will want to know who covers you. They will want to hear language from you that reflects um, depth of relationship. And as they get to know you, they, they will want to hear you're a man where God has truly worked with him. Uh, and ultimately, the interface between meeting new people and coverings will translate forward when another relationship develops where trust and respect is, is the foundation. And that takes time. The only people that have longevity of stable living and fruitful ministry are people who have covering. And there are many people out there who are still in ministry to some degree, have no covering, but they're dysfunctional in themselves and have damaged more people in the body of Christ than they've helped. And that generation of ministers, missionaries, whatever label you want to attach is simply coming to an end through process of elimination. The kingdom of God advances by the Holy Spirit, but the same Holy Spirit rationalizes physical and earthly structures that have gone by the sell-by date and always moves forward with people that are part of the new wineskin the Holy Spirit has put together. Your question's a very good question and a highly valid question for such a time as this. Uh, and I believe it's been fleshed out even in the body of Christ as we look more at the infrastructure of the church and what it means to be a leader in the contemporary church for leaderships going through Massive reformation at the moment, too. Uh, on Tuesday night, when I was speaking at the conference, uh, I became very aware of the old guard of charismatic leadership, the authoritarian spirit model that's coming to an end, really right now. Um, but there are still people trapped in those structures all over the world that are being destroyed by autocratic leadership. So in many ways... The contemporary church is made up of the Charismatic Survivors Association, where we've got our wounds that are really our badges of office, and we all have our own stories to tell. But the pain of being wounded in the household of faith has brought us to a place of much deeper maturity. And we have more than an embryonic idea of what leadership should look like in its servant constituent parts. So at the end of the day, accountability is necessary, it's there, it's growing, but it will provoke, in the last analysis, true servant leadership, where leaders look like Jesus 
and are people that love the flock and not in a professional relationship with the flock. And I believe the best leaders that are coming forth in our generation are part of the Charismatic Survivors Association. But it's not so much a textbook-driven experience, but a work of the Holy Spirit in their heart. That type of person wants transparency, wants accountability, wants to be close to people that can ask the hard questions so they can expose the wrong areas of their heart rather than give clever answers. Um, As a point of observation, and Ned demonstrated this wonderfully in his teaching this morning, the only leader you can trust is a leader who walks with a limp in the inside, that he's wrestled with God, and you perceive that brokenness. Because you know self has been addressed, it's been smote a death blow in a leader that walks with a limp in the inside. But taking it into other arenas and looking at that whole area of accountability, and this is good for all of us to take on board, you should tell two people the worst thing you've ever done in your life. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to turn round right now and tell the person sitting to your right. We can all relax. But, you know, there's something about the devastation of sin where full healing only comes through when you tell another human being what you've done. I've done that twice now in 1985 and in 2001. I was a very young Christian in 1985 when I did that, and it didn't seem too big a deal then. In 2001, when the Holy Spirit told me to tell another person what happened, I was shaking, and I was not quite crying, but it was a gibbering wreck, or blithering idiot. Either expression works, and it was really hard. But anyway, I did, as I was provoked to do. And for some time afterwards, when I would think of the person, I feel a lot of shame and guilt and condemnation because really it had been a long time since I'd ventilated that. And the person I know I can trust absolutely as I could in the first instance. Actually, the guy I shared that with in 1985 is now dead. And don't worry, I'm not praying the guy I shared it with in 2001 dies soon as well. But, you know, in my own heart, when I face God day by day, I feel good about that. And I believe it's part of deeper accountability. It's part of, I'm living my life before God and man. And there's a willingness for transparency. There's a willingness for accountability. There's a willingness to be vulnerable. Yeah, all of that's loaded with the need for tons and tons and tons of wisdom. No, no doubt about that. To try and wrap this up, I'm giving you the long-winded version of, of, of my thoughts. In many ways, I, I believe that you can't legislate for accountability and covering, that it's something we interface with, that we reflect on where we're at and where the people that cover us are at, that that's relationally driven to. Has that helped? Has that been useful?
I'm Justin Biakweli. I have uh, two short questions. And the first one maybe will be directed to Dale and Dave. For um, pastoral voice and apostolic voice, uh, in Matthew uh, 18, 10, and 11, about uh, the lost, the wandering, the lost sheep. Who was the fault? Who was in fault? Is the sheep or the shepherd? Yeah. The sheep or the shepherd? Because the sheep, one sheep was lost. There were 101 was lost and uh, he left the, the, the 99. He went to look for the one. So now what when that time happened, who was in, in fault? The sheep or the shepherd? And the second question will be for uh, Jim, but just walk out. <laughs> About the evangelical view. And you did hit really a, a wonderful point concerning the evolution and creation and how are Believer, Christian, disciples, sometimes we don't stand for it. We run away. We avoid it. And my question is, okay, yes, the science say about the evolution that the human being was a monkey and from the monkey become a human being. If the monkey, if, if a human being came from the monkey, why the monkey is still there? Because when I plant a seed, it grows, it gives me fruits. From the evolution view as apostolic, how I can defend that as a new believer, believer, a teacher, or a disciple from that perspective view? My answer, Justin, is I don't have an answer. Seriously, I, I don't know how to respond to that. Uh, my only experience with sheep has been in New Zealand. Uh, and sheep run everywhere. So I, I, don't, I can't answer that. I don't, I don't think um, Jesus even is dealing with who is at fault. I think he's dealing with the reality of what is. And, um, you know, going back to Ezekiel 34 that I dealt with yesterday, lightly. Um, the fact is, is that, is that that's God's view of how we deal with people from a pastoral per perspective. He's not, he's not saying, you know, who's at fault that people are broken? Who's at fault that people are 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 scattered? Who, you know, he he he's more dealing with what what are we doing with those people? And and so. And so from a, from a shepherd perspective, I think we're responsible then when, when we become aware that there are sheep that are lost, that we, we implement a process in which they're found. We may not do it ourselves, depending on the size of the congregation. But so I don't, I think the, I think the answer is, in, in my perspective, that's not the point. Who is at fault here? It's what we're going to do with the reality of, of where people are at now, and that, and that, as spiritual leaders, we do we do carry. Unless what God said in Ezekiel thirty four doesn't apply anymore, I think it does. 
we we do carry a responsibility for for the sheep and 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 what we do with who we have. So, um, I guess hopefully that responds. I just want to make sure I understand the question: Is how do we, um, yeah, how do we answer when people stand? I think the first thing we have to realize is that people's adherence to the idea of evolution is much more a beloved dogma of an anti-theistic worldview. Because until Darwin came up and said, hey, I got an idea, we all came out of the you know, slime and became monkeys and then people, nobody seriously looked at this incredible world and said there wasn't a designer. You know, at, at some point, everybody sort of just conceded there must be a designer to make such an intricate and beautiful world. So God was an assumption. Then it was a lot of discussion about what is he like and, you know, all of that sort of thing. But when Darwin came up with that, the people, and, and this, is back to, this goes back to the rebellion of Adam's heart, is that Adam wanted to break away from God. And when Darwin... <laughs> And his contemporaries finally said, I can conceive of a way the universe exists without God. In a way, you got a way to now really separate yourself from God by eliminating him. And so it got latched onto. And Darwin himself said, uh, you know, if certain things didn't happen in the next hundred years, my theory is going to be disproven. You know, in other words, we didn't find intermediary species. We didn't find this, and so, you know, if Darwin was still alive and still a, and was an honest man, which I'm not sure he was, uh, he would say, "Well, my theory has been proven wrong because none of the things that were required to establish it have been scientifically discovered." I think, in all honesty, we have to, as Christians, realize two things. One is. Evolution as a theory is not science because science can be proven in a laboratory and established. The second thing is, even though it's not science, it is the central doctrine of anti-theism because it, it posits a world that wasn't created, that just became out of nothing. And therefore, it is clung to like, <laughs> you know, irrationally. And, and so that's why what where we're at today is in the universities. You don't, they don't argue evolution anymore. They just mock the unbeliever. And and so you know it really has become, uh, so, you know. And what I hope is, and you know maybe this gets back to that triangle. You know, is that the one thing that seems to just explode that myth you know, that there isn't a God is signs and wonders and the prophetic and all that sort of thing. And I think it goes back to the fact that we as Christians in the West need to move beyond just rational arguments back and forth and go to the signs and wonders and, and, and prove that there is a, a something out there that is acting and living and real and uh, by our witness and our testimony I think you know, I think we'll, we'll see many people convinced. You know the because because where evolution leads you 
is an ugly place. And, you know, social evolution, well, you know, Hitler was a derivative of the evolutionary uh, theory. So it's an ugly place, a, a world without God. <laughs> Does that help at all? My name is Ludovic Pierre. You know, I want, first of all, I want to, uh, want to thank Pastor Jim for listening to the voice of the Lord. And also I want to thank every one of you standing up there, you know. That, that's make me remember about Paul in Acts 16. When uh, he had the dream, and he called his fellow, you know, missionaries, and said, guys, listen, I have a dream. That's what I see in Pastor Jim, that uh, he has a dream, for we are in a box. And then call of you, and none of you don't say, oh, no, I'm whining, don't want to come in. But you come and say, yes, we're going, just like Paul said to the, to the, the fellows, you know, and none of them complaining said, we're not going. And they just move in the same direction. But later on, they experience tough moment and hardship and beating. But I believe this subject, there is a price that we're going to pay for it. You all, Pastor Jim, call into it. And then uh, my uh, question is, uh, are, we going to, are we going to see uh, uh, what the motivation after we get out from this small box, do we going to have a, a bigger box? Or are we going to really destroy the box that we have? Are there going to be beatings later? You didn't tell us about that. <laughs> Is that before we leave? Is that no? Uh, <laughs> but you know, get, get, let me. I, I really didn't do a good job of describing. Uh, were you here yesterday? I got that word picture and I shared it. I didn't do a very good job describing it. It was really hilarious. Okay, it, it was the picture was that, you know, you had some little guy, you know, one of us, who was at the out-of-the-box conference, and it's sort of like he had taken his little box of God and was looking into it, sort of like saying, I'm going to, I want to, you know, get Jesus uh, out of my box. And, and while he's looking into his little box to try to get Jesus out of his box, massive form of Jesus was looking over his shoulder, and kind of like going, what what do you got in that little box? And it certainly isn't me, you know, but he wasn't telling the person, you know, sort of like he was just talking to him and said, I'm trying to get Jesus out of the box. And uh, and all of a sudden, you know, it's sort of like then you look up and you go, oh, my goodness, you've never been in my box. This was some little idol of Jesus or some little concept that I could control, that I could feel comfortable with. And in one sense, we never feel comfortable with Jesus, do we? I mean, he's, he's so loving, but he's a little scary. 
because he's so huge and he has such huge visions and he wants to, me to be involved in that. And like you just said so beautifully, it's going to cost me my life to go with him. And then it was sort of this idea. I said, well, if you're done with your little box, get rid of it because I'm never going to get in that little box, you know. And, he, and then the word was, yeah, just put on your hiking shoes and you follow me. And then this phrase came to me, uh, what is it? I, I called you to follow me, not package me. And that's what a lot of what we've spent a lot of our lives doing, packaging Jesus so we'd feel comfortable and in control. And if we could just get comfortable with not ever feeling comfortable and in control, I think that's what he was trying to say. I was Jim, but I was the other Jim. I'm not Jim. Um, either one. I'm Ned. Um, you know, Ludovic, you brought up Pastor Jim, and it, it just reminded me of um, this, this whole Mission St. Paul thing, which is an out-of-the-box thing that happened. And, uh, and really the way it happened is we just went away to pray. Uh, it, it was really an Acts 13 kind of thing. Leaders went away, we prayed, and God said to do this, and we began to do it. And But but the key was this, and, and I, I saw this, and how did I see it? I don't know, I, but I knew it was God. When I came down here, I, I had been formative in a group of pastors coming together up in Schooner, Wisconsin. I came down here, and I met Jim, and I knew when we first started getting together, that he was the one that should do this. And we met for years with another group of pastors uh, that were trying to do this thing, and I thought, eh, this is not going to work. It's not going to work because we didn't have the right guy actually leading it. And I would say that to him. I said, it's not going to work until you're leading it. I mean, this sounds kind of arrogant, but it's not. Um, maybe that's arrogant to say it's not arrogant, right? <laughs> That I should be the leader. No, uh, I. <laughs> thank you, Pastor Dave. Uh, but but it was. Um, but when uh, when that connected, um, it moved, and it's been. And, and to me, I just love being around it because it's it's a God thing, led by a God ordained person to do that thing, and He leads it with His hands uh, in it and off of it. I don't know how to say that. But for instance, I mean, what happened last night, I, this is the reason I knew he should do it. Th that was a unique meeting last night um, in the sense that, I mean, you look at this and you say, really? Are you, I, really? Are you doing this? And you, you do it, and I know he does it at, 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 a, at an immense price. I know what it extracts from him to have so many diverse things coming together and somehow trying to move with that. And I knew before, before last night, I knew years ago that because he was doing that kind of thing here, he should be the guy who was going to help to bring uh, a, a large mosaic together in St. Paul. All that to say, Ludovic, is that somehow then I think the out-of-the-box move is simply there's a place where in vulnerability we get before God and say, um, here we are. Uh, can you talk to us? And I think he's always willing to talk to us. To me, that, that, that's, that's the reality of Acts 13. Leaders got together and prayed, and the Holy Spirit said, and the first missionary journey takes place. I, I, 
anybody happy for the first missionary journey? Yeah. <laughs> You're here because of it. And, um, but, it's, um, but it was that move that basically said, God, is he is out of the box. I love this image. He, he's out of the box. He just doesn't live in a box. He lives out of the box. And so part of it for us is when we're in a box is to, is to call to God who is out of the box and say, is there something you'd like us to do? He's going to say, yes, and he's going to move you. I'm done here. Let me read the first verse. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, all these guys. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. And the next four chapters are, excuse the phrase, hell on wheels. Um, as they go out and confront and get blasted and create but it's like, this is it. <laughs> this is, huh? Yeah, no itinerary. Uh, we're going, uh, I think the itinerary was we're going that way. And that was it. And, and just trusting God. You know, it's, um, but I, I think sometimes we get too smart. You know, we, we think that somehow we got the system, we got the program, we're going to crank it out, we're going to do it. Not against programs. But unless there is a place where the Holy Spirit can break in, where you are actually saying, Anything else? He might say, yeah, I've been waiting for you to ask. Yeah, there might be something else. And, I, um, and there is something else. But I think a lot of times leaders don't have enough unity or vulnerability to, go, to get together and say something else. I mean, our plates are pretty full. How about your plates? Pretty full? Yeah, I don't need to hear anymore. But I do. I need to hear something that maybe, maybe the Lord wants to shut down some of your stuff. Possible? He could, he could, and I think it belongs to him, and um, he thinks he can shut it down and create new things, but I think that's the, I think leaders who have enough confidence and trust in each other and can get before God and say, talk to us in, in our own frail way here and begin to do it, take stumbling steps forward in the right direction, and he does it. He does stuff. I think he wants to do a little more. One quick comment. Um, I think we all create boxes all the time. Uh, it's called assumptions. And um, Paul had it. Paul had assumptions. Paul assumed he was supposed to go to Bithynia. The difference is, is that he was in tune enough with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit could stop him, um, which would then break through that box into the next level. 